good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of our listeners all over the world. I'm Barry Muller, your host of the Revamp Podcast. Today, I have the privilege to host Alex Oppenheimer, our guest on this podcast. He is an investor and advisor for startups with, um, and I would say, I don't know if he would say this, I would say he specializes um, with, with bringing in the RevOps and bringing in go-to-market frameworks, um, something um, unique from an investor perspective. And today on our podcast, we're going to be able to hear from him how he views revenue operations from an investor perspective um, and how people um, and startups and growing startups and scaling startups can become better companies through operations, through RevOps, and through um, just better business practices. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to, great to be here. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm really excited that you could join. So Alex, maybe before we start, you could tell um, the audience and myself a little bit more about yourself. Um, you're an investor and advisor. What does that mean? And um, maybe you could tell us about um, your, where you became passionate about RevOps um, and helping companies do that. Absolutely. So I kind of start from the beginning because uh, in a kind of nerdy way, it all starts when I was like, I don't know, 10. Uh, and I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in and around technology and finance. Uh, my dad's a CFO for the last 25 years. And so I grew up with stocks and IPOs and technology. Um, went to Stanford and studied mechanical engineering uh, and then took a job at Morgan Stanley in technology investment banking, naturally. Uh, I actually felt like it was a very clear entree for me, even though most people are like, wait, you didn't study business? I'm like, well, we did seven weeks of training at Morgan Stanley and I took two finance classes at Stanford. So I, I knew plenty. Um, and, uh, and I spent my two years at Morgan Stanley in investment banking doing the high level stuff, the valuation, the positioning, uh, really getting to work with some amazing companies and see at a, from the, the top down high level, kind of at the end of the road or, you know, somewhere in the middle of the road, you know, what, what makes them so great and how to best communicate that to investors. And, I pretty quickly realized that I, I really like that exciting period for companies and I like companies that are doing cool stuff. And so I then went and joined NEA on the East Coast doing early stage or mid stage uh, venture capital investing series A, B and C enterprise software companies. And while I was there, I pretty quickly started spending a lot of my time with the portfolio companies. So my first year I did like 10 investments and and then would go to the board meetings but then like stay and work with them for the next day and what i recognized was a lot of these companies they just didn't have the, the kind of like the finance chops they have great leadership great product great sales marketing recruiting uh but they just didn't have that that rigor and that perspective which was going to help them kind of organize and do resource allocation efficiently to grow and so i saw an opportunity and a need for myself to say, all right, I've got this like raw finance spreadsheet skill set. How can I take that into companies and you know bring them a, a, a kind of a skill set and a function that they don't have at Series A or Series B, and also learn a massive amount about how companies actually work myself. And so I really got this amazing front row seat working with companies and um, and learned a ton. And and so I. Um, after three years there, I decided to move to Israel, and to, that was that was summer of 2016. And um, I I worked in Israel for a year at a corporate VC, 
And then I left and actually just went out on my own. And pretty quickly, what started happening was, you know, all these companies started reaching out, asking me for help doing the same stuff I'd been doing at NEA. And it was coming from a few different sources. One was from some of my NEA portfolio companies that I had worked with, which kind of made me like, like, well, there's a guy who replaced me and he's very smart. Like, why do you want me when you can get him for free? Uh, and then, and then, it, it, you know, friends, portfolio companies, friends who had their own companies were, were asking for my help. And so I really kind of doubled down on that. And that, that's really like my passion. I view my, my role as like being this information and like wisdom sharing layer across a bunch of companies. And so I've got this unique perspective now where I've been what I call like waist deep in like several dozen companies. And whereas I find some people could give you like one paragraph about like a hundred companies and some people could write you a PhD dissertation about one or two, I'm, I'm kind of in this middle ground. And so I spent a, a couple of years just working with companies and, you know, a day a week going pretty deep on the operations and trying to, you know, kind of, again, from that valuation, what makes companies great perspective, better understand the core, you know, how do we quantify what's really going on in this company? to map it all the way up to like, what makes this company great? And so I worked with some great companies here in Israel, in Europe and in the US and realized a couple of things. The first was that I was doing really valuable work for them in spreadsheets, you know, like going through Salesforce and getting their pipelines and HubSpot, getting their marketing funnel and getting their finance data from QuickBooks and getting their payments data from Stripe and getting product analytics data from wherever they had it and kind of doing my own ETL and bringing it all together and then getting a really nice clear picture of like what really matters in this company and being like, wow, this is like a great way that we can allow investors to kind of come in from the top and double click down in the right way to understand what's really going on and why that matters without needing to get a PhD in this business. And but then I thought to myself, I'm like, well, the founders also really need this stuff. Like, yeah, I can pull it all together manually. And that's very like batch oriented, very like once a month, once a quarter, once, you know, once a fundraise type of thing. But this information is like critically strategically important to how you choose to run the business. And so doing it manually doesn't really make sense. Like I always tell founders, like if it's important enough for investors or board members to see like once a quarter or once a year, it's important enough for you to see every single day. And so, you know, and if there's detachment there, then, then you have a problem. And so I'm very big on aligning metrics from top to bottom and then across the different functions of the company. So, you know, one thing led to another and I realized a couple of things. One, we needed a solution um, that was much more operational for these companies. So I teamed up with my good friend, Brian, who's a Salesforce guru because Salesforce is the most powerful operating data hub that there is connects to everything and you can do everything there. And so, whereas I find myself being like, wow, I wish there was like a place we could pull marketing, sales, finance, product data all in one place. And like, well, there is, it's called Salesforce. It's not, <laughs> not the simplest, you know, out of the box thing, but like it, it's extremely powerful. And so I realized that if we, you know, kind of go top down with companies, then that can work really, really well. If we're backing it up from the, from the bottom up, and, and then I also realized that if you, if I can work with founders really early on in their life cycle, I can help them understand 
the importance of some of these key things without making it overbearing and taking away from the focus of building product and getting customers and bringing on great employees. And so I like working with really early stage companies. The problem is that like, you know, those companies can't pay you and they need money. So I kind of was like, all right, I guess, I guess like a fund is a good uh, method for that. So, um, so I decided to start investing in early stage companies and pretty efficiently bring that perspective uh, to the table. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we wanted you on this podcast uh, so badly was because this is a very different perspective. Um, and I think there's a lot of valuable information. I'm trying to go where to start. So let's talk about early stage versus late stage. Um, spreadsheets is very classic uh, for fine, uh, like, you know, investment banking for, um, for companies that are IPOing before IPO, even I hear that companies, series B investors look at spreadsheets, but series A investors don't look at spreadsheets. So what's your perspective on that? <laughs> oh man, I was just, I was actually just thinking about this. Uh, you know, I have some pre-seed investments that are now raising seed and everyone says now, oh, just say you're doing a seed because in seed, no one cares about metrics. Like the multiples don't matter, right? Which there's some truth to that. I say, yes, but they're going to matter when you want to raise a series A and a series B. <laughs> so you need to have to be able to paint a picture and draw lines from like where we are now and where we're going to need to be and what we need to do to like kind of grow into our valuation. Um, I, I kind of, at the early stage, I believe in like the spreadsheet as, or any modeling tool. I'm invested in a company called Causal, which is a, which is a great kind of like non-spreadsheet uh, modeling tool. It's very efficient and connects to all sorts of data sources. And, you know, I, I kind of, again, I'm like from investment banking. So like if I have like writer's block, I just like open up a spreadsheet and start playing with it. It's like a canvas for me. And um, I feel like you can get your hands around data and really, you know, viscerally understand what's going on in real time, which is great, except when you have too much data, uh, <laughs> then you need other tools. Uh, I actually have a company that helps with that as well called Row 64, but uh, just plugging the portfolio. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that the exercise is more important than the result for early stage companies. So one of the things that I like to do with founders is, you know, I've built dozens and dozens of models and I have all sorts of templates and things that I've built and simplified and simplified and simplified. Because my goal is it's got to be simple and ownable by a non-financially savvy founder. Because it doesn't matter if I can do it and I understand it. That's not what matters here. What matters is can the person who's running the business really wrap their hands and their mind around the tools that they need to run their business so that now they own it and it's, it's what they need. And so I find that the exercise of going through that and, and working through in a, a simple way, and I bring kind of the experience that I've had working with all these different companies to those conversations and say, okay, now, now this is yours and you own it and you can run with it. And we can make the, you know, detailed modifications along the way, but like the exercise and the concepts I find, especially at an early stage are significantly more important than anything else. Huh, that's awesome. And it's really interesting. Um, maybe soon we can even talk about some of the metrics that you, that you see are um, important, <laughs> but before we get there, um, we, there's some other interesting things I wanted to ask Israel versus uh, rest of the world or America. Um, 
have you seen that people are thinking differently here? Is there uh, more of a go fast uh, environment in Israel where they don't, where they need to step back and do the exercises or what, what are your thoughts on that? So um, I'm not going to try to compare like Israel, Europe, the U S cause like you have just vast differences and diverse groups of people and experience sets. I will say that Israel is a little bit less like variable in its, in like the background and, and, an experience set of, of a lot of founders just relative to other geographies. And that's mostly because of size and because of the network and geography dynamics and the ecosystem here, which is extremely powerful, but I, I actually think it can, it can create some blind spots. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of like answer, uh, you know, both of those questions about like the metrics and, you know, that other dynamic. And I think that there's been a trend over the last, I don't know, five years that just like SEO content, clickbait is like what runs marketing. I'm sure you would understand this better than I do. And it seems like, again, it's one of my theses, but like, I think that like kind of Facebook ads and Google ads are a little bit played out for anyone except like Nike and GM, you know, and uh, because they're, price to perfection. There's no more like arbitrage. Uh, so you have to find other ways. And so people just started like blasting out content. And the one of the issues is that like, there's a big difference between what people need to hear and what people want to hear. And that's very hard when there's a whole bunch of stuff that people want to hear because it sounds nice and it's simple and it's easy to digest and it's familiar versus what they need to hear, which is customized and nuanced and deeper and more complicated. And and, and that it's hard to kind of like get that stuff through, you know, it's like I, I met a company once and they were like, yeah, this is our MRR. And that was like their North star metric. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like you're a, you sign five to six figure multi-year deals. I don't care about your MRR. Like I want to hear your ARR because that's like a nice relatively unified metric, even though not even everyone agrees on how, what, how that's defined uh, on a couple of different vectors, but you, you should be focusing as your North star as like bookings TCV. Like if you're signing multi-year deals with expansion, like I want it, that's, that's what your sales team is doing. That's what your product is delivering on. Like, that's what I want to hear. Not your MRR, but they read some blog posts that said MRR, like, this is how you do it. And it was like, well, no. And so I kind of just, in, in seeing all this stuff again, kind of from like the top down and then from a little bit from the inside out, realize that like, you really have to just boil everything back down to the core fundamentals of what makes a business. And I mean, especially a venture backed business work, which is the unit economics. And that's another term that's kind of been hijacked and spit back over, you know, like marketing content to people in oversimplified ways. But the, the, the core idea is that you have, you know, you have fixed costs, you have variable costs, you have recurring costs, and you have non-recurring costs. And then you have like time revenue and recurring revenue. And those are like the six components of your, of your unit economics. And those don't actually map to accounting. <laughs> they also don't map to cash. So you have to be clever and creative and really understand 
what the, those dynamics in the business are and how the money moves and what that represents and what's earned versus what's had versus what you're at versus what you did, right? Like these verbs are actually like very, very important. And um, you've got to kind of pick and choose what those, those right things are for every business. And so, you know, one of the things I always kind of dig on is when I, people come to me and go, oh, the unity economics are working. Whether it's an investor talking about one of their companies or it's a founder talking about their own company. So yeah, the unit economics are great. I say, okay, well, what's your unit? Because if you don't know what your unit is, can't talk about unit economics. And you know, everything else is just some sort of like quick hack proxy for that. So if you if you can narrow down what your unit is, then great. Um, if you can't, then you can't talk about unit economics. And if you if you haven't gone through those things, honestly, you know, there are all sorts of mistakes that happen in terms of like, for example, one time versus recurring costs. So for example, if you have like service people in your organization who some do implementation, but some do ongoing services, and you look at unit economics and say, all right, what did we do in the first month from a services perspective? Oh, but that's that's just implementation. But okay, but does it continue or not? Like it makes a massive difference in the unit economics of that business. You know, people say oh, our LTV to CAC is this, and it's like, oh man, okay, let's 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 start with LTV. Um, your company is six months old. You don't know what the lifetime value is of your customers. Now, to be fair, there are certain industries where you kind of know the average lifetime based on the behavior, like you know, SMB cybersecurity. You keep typically keep your customers for like two years. So like, okay, you can say like, that's our lifetime is two years. So then you you know that you got to recover that in CAC on a gross margin adjusted basis. Again, adjusting for those those variable and recurring costs. But in a lot of businesses, they're just they're doing like a very simple math, right? And I, like you're basically doing an, an annuity math from a financial perspective, where you're just taking like what the ARR is and dividing it by the churn, which is actually bond math. Again, it's like very financy, but it's like a gross oversimplification of a sum formula, like the you know the sigma thing. It's like the sum formula from like you know zero to n of like every year, and then you're doing some sort of actually churn rate and discount rate built into that model, and then you're taking that from one to infinity. So that's how you, and then that kind of resolves itself to that like ARR over churn, like LTV, but in reality, you can't assume infinity. So I don't know, lock in a couple of years, but don't forget to discount it also because of the time value of money and like the risks associated with it, both of those things. So there's, and then, and then on CAC, like, again, I'm sure you understand this, like attribution is extremely important. Like you have to look at sales cycle, which again, trying to do really, really detailed attribution on every single thing is very hard. And I actually think that you don't want to get into that level of detail because like one, it becomes this zero sum like dance where you're, you have to account for every dollar spent and like it becomes almost impossible. And you also need to average it across everything. So again, you've got to recognize what's paid versus what's organic, do it for both separately and together. And then you have to look at the timing of those things. So actually, a lot of companies, they look at CAC, they just say, all right, what did we do last month? What did we spend on sales and marketing last month or last quarter? It's like, all right, well, if you have a six-month sales cycle, again, the cash needs, kind of almost like the working capital needs of your business are there because you're paying sales and marketing up front and not getting money until later. But businesses typically grow. 
So if you actually do your attribution properly on a, like a, again, I don't use LTV to CAC as like a metric because it's just like whatever you want it to be. But if you look at CAC payback, which is a lot more like, you know, tactical and, and understandable and measurable objectively, like you, you can actually like your, your CAC number becomes lower because all of a sudden you're looking at marketing expense from six months ago. And marketing expense from six months ago is probably lower than marketing expense was last month if you're a growing company. And that's where those leads came in. So, you, you know, you have to look in your Salesforce and your HubSpot to figure out the aging of those things on average. So there's a real exercise to figure out what that CAC is. So when I do my financial models, I figure out what my offsets are on CAC. And then I lock in a CAC number and I use that for the rest of my calculations. But I've found that, you know, whether you're using SAS magic number, you know, some version of LTV to CAC, CAC payback, uh, SAS quick ratio, like whatever you want to do. Like if you really just focus on the fundamentals of those like six things, the cost side and the revenue side, like then those, those metrics just fall out. Like, <laughs> like I, they're, they're output metrics. And so I think, again, this is, this is a little, I don't want to get too like ranty, but part of the issue is that, you know, when I started studying these metrics, when I was at NEA, my partner comes to me and says, Hey, here's a bunch of research I found on the internet on like SAS metrics and subscription business models. Like, Learn it, study it, do your own models, do your own research. Great. And then he handed me a stack of board decks like this high from like NEA's entire software portfolio and said, look at them. What are they talking about? How are they talking about it? Because they are the ones that own it. The operators own it and they really understand it. And so I was able to look through that. I was able to talk to those people. And the problem is that a lot of the content is published by VCs now. And VCs are lifting what they hear in board meetings often. And then like spitting it back out to founders. But ultimately the job of a VC is to diagnose a company and understand what's it worth and what's it going to be worth, which are, you know, intrinsically tied together in the business. But that's not how, that's just what. And so using diagnostics, I always compared it's like, could you imagine going to the doctor and the doctor says like, you have high blood pressure and a fever. You go, okay. So like, what can you do for me? Like, what do I do about it? Like, you know, like I need to, do I need to like take a medicine? Do I need to exercise and sleep more? Like, do I need to eat differently? Like, what, you know, what, tell me what to do about it and how, I go, how to go about it. And it's just like hugely different. And even a more exaggerated version of that at one of my portfolio companies, I was walking through there. I sent them like my template and we were walking through it and they're like, wow, like we've shown our numbers to like a bunch of investors. And a lot of them just say, well, you're not growing quite as fast on the top line as some of the other companies that we've looked at. It's like, that's like, why would you even say that? Right? Like that's the equivalent of going to the doctor <laughs> and I'm not comparing VCs to doctors by any means. But like, again, it's just this diagnosis approach only of like, but it, could you imagine even less than a diagnosis? Just like, Hey, you know, the last guy who was in here is healthier than you are. Like so unhelpful. <laughs> like, and it just, now you have psychological issues, you know, like, so um, so, so yeah, like just digging deeper and deeper and then rooting back to those, those core things I find is, is the only way to make it work. And then that's just step one on like the philosophical level. Then there's like, how do you operationalize that and make it come alive? And that's why I, I like having my, you know, RevOps team who's awesome because we can actually map out processes and then 
we, we, I always say great models begin in PowerPoint and we, we map everything out with the company. And we do that on like a conceptual level. And then we actually do it like on a tactical level, like processing, like, you know, the different phases in the sales cycle and how leads move and like the routes back. And then we do both of those. And then we pass it to the rep, like the Salesforce team. And then they actually like make that come alive and they make it come alive in a way that is simple. Like that, you know, it's not overbearing. It's not, it's not going to be a massive amount of work for salespeople to actually use it. And it, but it's going to throw off the right information and data and metrics and define things in the way that they need to be defined. And then as the company scales, we can unlock all these different features to add the complexity of different layers and different channels and all that stuff that comes in later. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. Um, the, there's like the, exactly. I, I actually thought it was very interesting that you said it starts in the PowerPoint um, and not like the spreadsheet, which you're, or causal, one of your portfolio companies, uh, but it starts in the PowerPoint. It's kind of like that brain dump, if you will, or brainstorming and then breaking down into the pieces. Um, it's, it's an exercise that's, that's really cool. Um, oh, oh, there's one other thing I wanted to say, sorry, okay. on, the, on the unit economics piece where, mm. In a lot of SaaS companies, your unit is just your customer. It's just a customer. And so people don't necessarily feel the need to do all this digging into like the ins and outs and the concepts and what, what are all these things? Because it's like, all right, this is a well-trodden path. We're doing enterprise sales, right? Like we're not reinventing the wheel here. Like thousands and thousands of companies run the same thing. And like the unit economics work as long as A and B. And it's like, Again, because it's so well op, like studied and run that it just kind of works. But as soon as you start throwing in variability in there from a business model perspective, all of a sudden you have usage-based upside, right? Or you're acquiring customers differently, or like your prices are low, but there's some viral component, you know, or there's a marketplace aspect. Like you have to go all the way back down to the first principles. Like you can't just hack it at that point. Like, again, if you're doing like, five to six figure enterprise sales, like, all right, this is, there's a playbook here. Great. But like, as soon as you want to add some complexity to that, it, it, it there's a real questions. Uh, and you have to go back down to the basics, which is not a painful exercise. It's like an hour long thing to like really do that. And you can save yourself a lot of trouble down the road. <laughs> I, um, that's a great like caveat, like asterisk. That's only one hour. If, you have the right direction, by the way. But um, I think people are like scared. First numbers, spreadsheets, and people sometimes I've seen from a founder perspective, like I forgot what they call it, but the ostrich in the sand. They don't want to hear uh, like what's going on. And they just know that they got money. So the VCs believe in them so that they, and they can spend <laughs> that money now. And exactly, SaaS will work it out or the, <laughs> the economy will work it out. Um, that's also some perspective I've seen. In these meetings, you, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said it. In, in these meetings, is it a RevOps person that you're meeting with? Is it the CEO and CFO? Who are in these meetings? Who should be in the meetings? Um, when should people, if they don't have your Salesforce services or like added value services, when should they be um, doing this themselves and who should be running that? All good questions. So, you know, I find that obviously most early stage companies don't have CFOs. Uh, and shouldn't, unless like it's 
one of the founders or something. And that's like that what they do and it's part of their product or something like that. But I, I think it's a very, like it's a CEO level thing because in my opinion, the job of the CEO is to be as much externally facing as internally facing. So the CEO's job is to manage all the different stakeholders, customers, employees, investors, the government, like everyone else who's, everyone who's involved in the company. And, and what great CEOs do is they're able to understand in detail what's going on in the business and understand what's going on in the capital markets and what works and be able to take wisdom from one and apply it to the other in both directions. And so the more that the found, like the CEO, the founders, like, again, sometimes it's the office of the CEO and there's a couple people in that, that group that they're well-versed in that and they can, they have those, those tools and those skills to think through that stuff, like the better off they are. Now it shouldn't become a focus, right? Like, again, the CEO's job is to, is to drive great product, build an amazing organization, hire great people, like get great customers, you know, raise money when necessary, not get lost in the nitty gritty, but if you can create connective tissue and tools that make all of those things easier, then that's great. Mm -hmm. And the, what was the, were you, the, the, the team with the CEO, what, what was the office of the CEO, office of the CEO. So who's, what positions are usually in that? Is that a RevOps person or is that a chief of oh, staff? So, is that? Yeah. I mean, there's, well, so that, that's often like kind of the founding team, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. it's the CTO, like in Israel, obviously like your average company has a CEO and a CTO, maybe like a mm -hmm. chief product officer in the founding team. That's just kind of what we have here, which is great. And, you know, sometimes it's really like CEO driven and the CTO is more like executing on the R and D side. Uh, and sometimes it's really like they're a team and one of them is a little bit more business-minded and a little bit more technical. But then if it's like a DevOps platform, then like the CEO would be the CTO at any other company. So it's, you know, you see a lot of different things, but it's really, again, who's driving the strategic direction of the business. And I find that, again, if that person who's driving hiring and product and pricing and sales, like, and is kind of bringing all that stuff together, whether that's one, two or three people, like they kind of all need to have that mindset around like, all right, as we build product, let's look for ways to create like radical alignment with our customers. So they'll pay us more. Let's right. make sure that we're not graduating our best customers, right? Like let's do feature prioritization based on what's going to make us the most money in the long term. I and mean, it's not about living five years from now because, you know, the, the fuse on any startup is very short. I heard the definition of a startup once is a company that's always almost going out of business. <laughs> so like the shoes, is, the fuse is short, but that doesn't mean that you can't also look ahead and then come back. And again, I think that's what great founders do. They're able to attach the vision where they want to be and what really macro thing they're trying to solve and then bring it down into like today and prioritize properly and manage that. To me, it's like a key trait of a, of a great CEO. And so, mm -hmm. so then the other thing was like the RevOps perspective. And so there's a lot of different definitions also on like, what is RevOps, right? I think we can all kind of agree. It's like revenue operations, but like what is involved in that? Some people think it's just like finance, like invoicing, billing, like deal desk, right? Some people think it's just sales, like, and just getting deals done and like, you know, accelerating revenue or something like that. Some people think it's just the go-to-market flow. Uh, there's, there's so many, like my 
view is that it's like it's putting everything together like revenue involves product it involves the go-to-market flow and it involves like the quantification of that which happens in finance and so you know and, and it kind of like it doesn't just quantify there also like the rubber meets the road in the bank account so um really being able to have the perspective around all of those at the same time i think is the key and again early on it's typically going to be ceo cto chief product officer like who's really kind of has their fingers in all of those different pieces. Um, one of the kind of frankly mistakes that I see companies make early is that they will hire like a sales, sales ops, sales manager type of person early who came from a business that they feel like is kind of similar to what they're doing. And then they were like, all right, so like, just do it. And my point is that like, that person might be able to do it, but it's highly strategic how you define your processes, because that will ultimately define the quantitative success of your business. It's like, if you're incentivizing salespeople to do X, but your investors care about Y, and, I, and I'm saying your investors care about, it, I mean, like the broader capital markets care about Y, then like, that's a problem, you know? Like you, you have misaligned incentives and that can happen along the chain. And so you, the, the mistake is just like, kind of like kicking it down to someone and being like, oh, this is not that important. Like, no, I actually think that I think we all know that like data is the lifeblood of companies and of the world now. And so to, to ignore missions and, you know, workflows, like is like that doesn't align with the idea that like data is like, you know, what is in the new oil, whatever, like we really need to understand it from a strategic level down and okay, now implement, implement it this way. And then again, it's a conversation. It's like, all right, well, you want to do it this way, like individual contributor on whatever team, like, well, let's talk about why and how that fits into the broader picture of what we're trying to accomplish as a company. And then again, you obviously in any company, you need like buy-in from all of the people around the table. You can't just like force things down on people. That's not a, not a, a great way of doing it. So it needs to be collaborative, but some of these conversations are uncomfortable because there are certain people that for generations have gotten away with not having what they're doing quantified. And now that we have data on everything, you can quantify everything. And dollars are the, the units that we use to compare the efficacy of anything that we're doing, which is then how we do resource allocation, which, which is what finance is. So some people don't like having to quantify what they're doing because they feel <laughs> like it's, you know, I'm like, okay, well, Look, we, we were, it's a business, right? Like it needs to be quantified. But even, by the way, even like social good, nonprofit, like they still quantify their impact. So like you have to be able to quantify what you're doing. Now you might have to get creative with exactly how you do that, but it needs to be like with the macro in mind of aligning like, okay, what, what is the end effect of this? Where will we see it come out? Like, great, you're doing brand marketing. Awesome. Like, where do we see that come out? Like, do we have leads that come in or is there a way that you can test that, like how it helped the kind of paid acquisition that we got by like hitting people more times? Like, is there some other like broader thing that we want to like maybe put on the back burner for now and say, we think this matters. Okay. But now it's, needs to be on the strategic priority list. So those conversations can always be awkward because someone's coming in and saying like, all right, tell me what you did this month, you know? Right. What do you have to show for it? It's like, oh, well, I did a lot of good stuff. And it's like, okay, well, like, let's figure out a way together to quantify that. Because 
I agree. It's good. Like, you know, but like, let's, let's quantify it so that when it's not just you and it's a hundred people, hopefully, then we can actually run a, a machine mm-hmm. uh, rather than have it be kind of touch and go at a yeah. small scale. Now it's and quantify specifically to revenue specifically, which is dollars. Yeah. You, I mean, everything comes down again to that, like, you know, in, in, in accounting, the terms are like revenue, gross profit, and like operating income. But those dynamics, especially in a subscription business where it becomes a calculus problem instead of an arithmetic problem, you kind of have to like lean on those concepts. Like the fact that like revenue is earned, uh, rather than, you know, just going with the hard definitions of what the government says are these things in these categorizations. So, you know, for, for example, like this is something that gets totally missed. So when I was at Morgan Stanley, we used to value um, SaaS companies on price to free cash flow and, and, and DCFs because they had cash flow. So you could do a DCF and and then the revenue multiple was really just the output relative comparison. Say, all right, a dollar of revenue here is worth X versus a dollar revenue here is worth X times 1.5 or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like that output that gives you, but it's not a core way of doing it. But when you lack those other financial metrics, you, people just kind of lean on that. And then as we saw over the last two years, that got completely out of control because there was no basis for it in anything fundamental. It's just a relative comparison. Like, 10x revenue, 50x revenue, these things on their own have no basis. So they have to map to other more fundamental ways of looking at businesses. I wrote a post about like proxy modeling and, and ultimately how you really have to go back down those, those steps to understand what it really gets to. But why, what happened to free cash flow? Right. So two things happened. Uh, the first is that people realized that if you invest a lot more, and thereby burn a lot more. You can grow these things a lot faster. And the growth rate brings in the entire DCF analysis and increases the value of the whole thing. So like, let's go for it. But again, that, like most things in life, has been oversimplified. And all the nuance went away. And it's just like, oh, just grow as fast as possible. And now we were saying like, you know, like growth at all costs, like reasonably responsible growth, you know, like these sort of qualitative things. Like that's one thing that happened. And, and then the other thing, once like cash flow went out the window, people forgot that the whole point of SaaS is that you get people to pay upfront for revenue that will be recognized over the next 12 months. So, and again, the cash thing is different from the revenue thing is different from like the bookings thing. <laughs> like I, I have like a whole definition list of like what all these things mean, but you've got, you know, like the, uh, now it's like people are like, oh yeah, it's an annual contract and people pay monthly. I'm like, well, that's a monthly contract <laughs> because there's absolutely no way to enforce. Like if they quit, like you're done. So, you know, like the contract's over, what are you going to do? You're going to hunt them down and get you to pay, you know, like the hundred dollars a month, you know, like, but if they pay you a thousand dollars on January 1st, and then the company goes out of business on June 5th, like they're not going to be like, oh, can we get 500 bucks back? Like, no, you got the cash yours great like and by the way you could recognize revenue for the rest of the year because a company still has access to that platform so yeah um people, we need to bring back cash flow but we need to not make it like really oversleep overly simplistic either because like revenue does matter 
you need to deliver value to your customers. So even if you collect up front, if they churn at the end of the year, then that defeats the whole point of the model. So anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. We only have three minutes left. So I do, do want to ask one last question and then um, tell people where they can find, um, find you if they have any questions, follow-up questions. Um, transparency, we, we touched on this before, but like the charts that you share with your founders, do you want them to share that with their team, like their sales team, their marketing team? Like, should it be on a TV? Like, these are our metrics. These are the cash flow that we're gaining. And this is how much it costs for that. Or should it be more private? Like every good answer, like it depends. Um, I'll be going through stuff with with founders and we'll be building charts. And, and I'll say like, ah, that's the one. That's the one that should be on your TV in your office for everyone to see because everyone can kind of connect to that and relate to it. And they can see how what they're doing impacts that. And like, you know, there are other things where, you know, I kind of, I generally say that like every company should have three sets of metrics. The first set of metrics is for the executive team. And it's like a lot of stuff and it's like several dashboards. And most of it is potentially negative leading indicators. Meaning if something is going wrong, we will see it here. All right. But also those key North star metrics. Um, the, the second set of metrics is like for your board where you're removing most of that, except selectively where you think that their advice might actually be helpful. Uh, and so that they can, you can kind of manage expectations. And then when your third set is like for like new investors where it's like, all right, here's our three charts that we care about and like, boom, boom, boom. And then the, all that that matters is about like long-term consistency can you continuously hit those? Like we used to do this analysis when I was in banking, like every quarter, every, you know, every 10 Q, every 10 K, do you want to be disclosing that? Like it is some, is it something you feel like you can rely on and like, you'll have a feel for it in the business, right? That it's like a good, you know, whether it's a, a leading indicator or a lagging indicator, like it actually, it actually just makes sense. And the answer is that like, there are certain things that always matter. Like you have to figure out what your right top line metric is, but you also need like, you know, the standard stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I'm next season, we'll get you that on the podcast. <laughs> um, we can pull out the spreadsheets. Exactly. So if someone has any questions on this podcast or if anyone wants to see some of your posts, um, can they find you on LinkedIn? Do you have any other platform that you write with? Yeah. So I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I have a Substack. I also have a medium. They're all basically have all the same stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I'm on Twitter. So, yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, Alex, this was really informative, really interesting, um, and definitely different perspective from a lot of our guests. So I really appreciate that perspective and looking forward to staying in touch and um, staying connected and learning more. Absolutely. From you. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.